Okay, so we're live. Welcome back to the Magic Minds podcast. I'm Matt Burke. I don't know, what's this? Show 47? Uh, and our third or fourth, fourth video interview. This is getting easier. It's definitely getting easier. Uh, it's definitely getting easier for Dottie. Dottie's snoozing over there in the background. So yeah, welcome back. Welcome back. I've just changed the angle of the camera uh, just, just to mix it up, really. Uh, apparently, you couldn't really see me from the last uh, video. So I just said I'd do it a little bit closer. And I'm probably because I'm getting a lot more comfortable. Uh, I decided I'll do it this way. So hopefully this works for you. Uh, thanks for the feedback about uh, Craig O'Brien's interview. Fucking what a sound lad, you know. I've got great time and I have a lot of uh, respect and love for boxing and boxers. But you know, it's a tough, tough career. He had a great win the weekend in Boston. Uh, it's brilliant and I wish him all the success and uh, if you have any interest in sponsoring a boxer or if you're a nutritional company or food or supplement company or something something that would benefit from sponsoring a, a boxer I'd say get on that you know because he's going to have a lot of exposure through Packy Collins' gym uh, going to Boston you know he's a lot of followers on Twitter it'd be well worth looking into and it'd be brilliant for him you know does it these small margins can have a huge impact on his career and his success you know whether it be through nutrition or whether it be through funding whether it be paying for whatever i don't know what way sponsors work but if it's something that you would be interested in i would say go for it. as i say he won the weekend it was brilliant so i think he's on his way up in the in the the chance of success yeah so i'd say definitely get on that so it was brilliant that your feedback that you liked it i loved it it was brilliant spending time with him you know on the show today, our guest is Will St. Leisure. Will is an artist and an activist. So uh, I went over to his gaff and we'd done the interview. What a lovely human being. Uh, I came across Will a couple of months ago from listening to a Blind Boy podcast. Him and uh, Tony Walsh were on it and I listened and I loved the boat them talking. And I said, geez, I'd love to have them on the podcast. And as you know, we've had uh, Tony Walsh on the podcast and that was fantastic. So I got in contact with Will, really because he posts a lot of stuff around the HIV. And to me, and from his knowledge, it's a feckin' epidemic at the moment, you know. And I just wanted to ask so many questions. So it was brilliant to get him on the show and to talk about that. But also talk as well about his life as an artist. I didn't know an awful lot about him. I knew he'd done some work, but because I was doing the interview... It gave me the opportunity to to research some of the stuff that he did. And it just blew me away. I was blown away by just reading on it. And then by sitting down with Will, I was able to, to get a, an insight to his life and the work that he did and the reasons and the passion behind it. And it, it just, he's just, I don't know, he's a unique character. Really, really unique. Lovely, decent, really, really lovely human being. And, you know, when I heard about the amazing work he's doing with ACT UP and, the, you know, the the activism it makes you fucking feel inadequate that you're not doing enough in society but that's probably just another stick for me to beat myself with but i'm doing my best hopefully these shows are are making a contribution to helping other people so that's my little bit to humanity but it was brilliant to sit down with will so hopefully you will uh you will enjoy this interview i loved it as i say he brought me out to his house and we had the chats and we had lovely chats beforehand and then the the podcast we sat and chatted and it was a really rich and educational and informative and just really, really good. And I hope you get what I got out of it. And that was fantastically brilliant. Another side note, uh, I was just at a podcast audience. You know, I was at a, sorry, I'll say that again. I was at a, a show, 
Panti, Panti Bliss. She has a podcast called Panti Socrates. And I got an invoice from Helen Shaw and John from uh, the Mill Lane or is it the, some, the, the shooter that they work at? I can't think of the feckin' name of it. But they invited me over to be, an audience, be in the audience uh, and I went over with my daughter and it was around sex and sex talk. And it's, I know I've talked about it on this show before. It's one of the things in life that I'm really, really weak around. And I find it difficult to have the conversation. I'm even squirming in the chair now, just even thinking about it. But it was brilliant. Uh, as I say, Panty was there. And she had six other people, the likes of Richie Sadler was there. I've asked him to come on the podcast before. I'd love to get him on. There's a few things, <coughs> excuse me, I'd like to talk about the likes of you know, homosexuality and football and sport, why is it not out by now if we're such a, a diverse and open society? It's still for soccer people to not come out yet. There must be a telltale, telltale sign and that's the guys around, I think, you know, and I'd love to, to, to ask him a few questions. It was himself and there was another lady there called Shauna. She's got a sex shop called uh, Sex Shupa. And there was another lady there called Tara DeVure. Tara DeVure is her name. Fucking brutal at pronouncing names. And there was a couple of other people. Paul Ryan, he was a sex uh, doctor. And it was brilliant. And it, it just looks at us as a culture. And why we don't talk about sex. And all these other things. And their take on it, you know. It was really brilliant. And as I say, I went with my daughter. And at times I was fucking nearly falling out of the chair. With embarrassment, some of the things that you were talking about but I like to do things that put me out of my comfort zone so it's brilliant to go and it was an opportunity then to meet some of these people and ask them to come on the podcast so I've asked a couple I'm not going to commit to who said they'll come on but they did say they'll come on so hopefully fingers crossed we get them on and I'll get myself into some awkward embarrassing situations I just have shame and embarrassment around sex you know it's from I'm not saying it's from my parents it's from from growing up it was just wasn't talked about I don't feel comfortable even when like with new partners and I talk about old partners and sex I just oh I clam up and I go no because I just feel I'll be judged and it's dirty and I don't want to know their past and they should know mine but realistically we should be able to talk about it it's fucking just natural it's just be honest and open and yeah so that's what I'm trying to do going forward and be brilliant to have those on uh, and to talk about it so yeah that's the crack so look have a listen to this uh, show let us know what you think uh, as always i'll ask you to like and subscribe on our youtube channel uh, itunes all the uh, the podcast mediums going across have a look we're on all those so give us a, a rating and a review subscribe and like all those fucking things i don't know that's apparently what you say as always, I'll thank my sponsors, Noel Royley from Rooney Media Graphics, Carolyn Harvey from ISA Nutrition. And I will always say to you, mind you and mind yourself. Look after your little self and enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Okay, so we're live. Welcome back to the Magic Minds Podcast. I'm Matt Bork. On the show today, my special guest is Will St. Leisure. Will, how's it going? That's great. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me, Matt. I'm absolutely delighted to have you on, Will. Oh, I'm thrilled to be to talking to you as well. I mean, we've been talking for the last while and I've been looking at some of the stuff you're doing, but I'm just thrilled to be that you've come and talked to me today because I think we're going to talk, get into some really important issues today. Absolutely. I've asked Will to come on the show today because Will's an artist and also an activist. So we're going to have a look at uh, both big parts of his life. So Will, just give us a little insight 
to your life as a an artist, your background in that? So my life as an artist sort of started about maybe in the early, uh, the early two thousands. Um, well, as an art, as a street artist in the early two thousands. Before that, I was a graphic designer for many years, and that's what I studied in college. Uh, so, the 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 sort of street art side of the the <coughs> taking the stencil side and doing all that street art started about the early two thousands, and a lot of that started with. Um, with work that I was doing with Greenpeace as well. I was with Greenpeace for about five years in the UK and um, used stencils an awful lot in some of the protests that we did. And so that leaned me towards then, if you can use stencils to, we'll say, uh, alert people or at least communicate with people about climate change and, um, and deforestation and a lot of issues that we were tackling at the time, then you can use stencils then to do other things, other social issues, and other, other political and social issues too. Cool. We just had the chat there just before we come on, and it sounds to me that you had kind of really open mind and liberal parents. You know, how was it uh, broached for you when you growing up and you decided I want to be an artist? Because a lot of kids are turned off that, you know, and I'm sure from your age and my age, we're very similar. Mm. How was that uh, picked up when you were a kid that you want to be an artist? And uh, I was just encouraged all the way. Yeah? Yeah, it was encouraged all the way. My my. Both my my parents were creative and still, you know, creative. Um, my father was a, was a really good artist, and he wasn't working as an artist. He worked in the forestry. Um, I think there was a little bit of regret there, um, that he never went to our college and did anything like that. But he certainly encouraged me and anybody in the family who was creative to do that. Um, the same with my mother as well. She's creative as well and does and and does art as well. You go, I go back home and. You know, there'd be a new painting that she'd show me or whatever, and she'll do writing, and he used to do writing as well. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So I came from a creative background, so everything was encouraged. So I was very lucky that way. Even in school, because I know any of the schools that I've been in, you know, art, and even to this day, I was only recently. My daughter's about two years ago. My daughter was a graduation, and they were at a talk, and you know, art wasn't talked. It was more like you know, do a trade or do the veterinarian or do some of that, but no creative side or mm. was seems to be talked about. What's your thoughts on that? The school was very good um, from the from primary school was good but also um, I went to um, in the town that I came from Clonmel there was a there was a uh, a Christian Brothers school or the high school which is a Christian Brothers school and then there was the um, RTC the tech what they call the tech or vocational school so I went to the tech and it was all about woodwork and metalwork and art and stuff like that they didn't do art in the other school at all Mm. As it did as a subject subject if you wanted to but no one really did it so I just happened to go to good school too and our art teacher was pretty good I mean yeah. a little old school for my taste you know but you know he'd be there a while yeah. <laughs> you know every painting had to start with like an underlay of yellow ochre you had to outline everything yellow ochre first and Why? then paint it I had no idea he never really explained you it you never got us. to the bottom of that one of life's great mysteries is it life's great mysteries yellow ochre and everything you know and so, you ever use it to this day does it ever creep into anything apart from putting yellow ochre in my toast before <laughs> <laughs> before butter no <laughs> I don't know uh, no it'll never come into no. oh actually maybe one thing it does um, maybe if I was outlining something or spraying something beforehand I'd use a light colour, but it wouldn't necessarily have to be a yellow ochre. It could be a light grey. Um, and then when it comes to putting down colour in prints, you always put a lighter colour first. So I guess that means what he was saying 
was put down a lighter color first and build on top of that. There was method in his madness. There was, yeah. Madness made me have to work <laughs> because he was, he, was, he was contrary. That's all I'll say. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Uh, you do uh, Dublin tours. Yeah, I do. Give Dub- us an interest. Uh, give us a little insight to that. Yeah, I do street art tours for um, a, a part of Airbnb experiences. So I do tours. Um, I'm not going to say every weekend because I stopped doing them over the sort of winter period. I don't really fancy doing them over the winter period, but I'm starting up again now. So I will say most weeks you will find one or two dates in the calendar where I'll take people on a street art tour around Dublin. Cool. Um, mainly around the Temple Bar area. It's very rich in a lot of large scale and small scale work. You wouldn't really think it by looking at it because you think of Temple Bar as being kind of like that, mm. you know, sort of uh, tourist trap. But it, there is some really big scale work and some interesting work there. And then around the sort of South, J, uh, South Great George Street area too, there's lots of work there too. So it's a mix of international and national um, and, um, and homegrown artists that are there. And um, I love taking people from different countries uh, and showing them the city, but using the the sort of the um, the, the the visor of 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 street art as a way of discovering the city, you know. The, and I get them to look out for one of the things I set them a challenge of is is to look out for particular pieces of work as we go along, because I don't want them to look at the shops. I don't want them to look at the landmarks so keep their focus yeah and afterwards they say they can we, they can't unsee street art then which is great because you open up their mind to something completely lovely yeah. there's a lot of mindfulness and i know it's all the rage and it's deadly yeah it is and also as well the, the idea is that when you start to do that then you can investigate every city by using <coughs> that sort of that scale of only looking for street art because while i have always said to people if you want a temperature if you want the temperature of a city and a society look at the walls they will tell you what's going on now if there's nothing going on there's nothing on the walls either a lot of repression or no imagination whatsoever you know so that's fascinating yeah but uh yeah so street art and, and um and and writing on walls will tell you an awful lot about what's happening in a city so what is the tone of dublin city at the moment then based on the art that's going on now then on the art that's going on now, you see a lot of stuff, especially with subset. We'll we'll we'll, we'll uh, talk about things like um, uh, vulture funds. I noticed that one of the pieces that they did recently was on vulture funds. Housing is a big one. Homelessness is a big one. So any of the artists that are out there now, you'll see that direct provision is another one as well. And um, actually, going to be working with. Um, a um artist from from the subset crew in the next uh, week or so doing um an act up one as well uh, along the along the lewis lines uh, just there near the forecourt so sort of an act up or uh, act up sort of aches um collaboration which is great deadly i've seen a lovely piece that you've done when i was just doing a little bit of research before this interview uh trouble f- fades in out in the open yeah Give us a little insight. I was blown away with that. I loved it. I watched a little documentary as well that you're doing. Mm. I've seen the trailer. Yeah. It's a fantastic piece. That was turned into a film, a documentary film. Uh, it has, has it? Yeah, has. I can't yeah. find it on Vivimo. Is no, it on? It's, it's, still, it's, still, it's still going around. Right, I've been looking for it for ages. Still, it's, it, it did its premiere in Germany just last year. Okay. So they're still wanting to put it into festivals. Okay, gotcha. So we can't put it online until it goes through all the festival things. So, 
So the genesis of that particular piece was that after um, I lost my dad in 2015, um, I had a tr- we had a, a, a fairly um troubled relationship um there was lots of uh there was violence there there was a lot of um dysfunctionality at home a lot of that i talked about in the film and um when he got sick and he was about and, and he was on his deathbed he could not bring himself to sort of patch things up which he'd done with other people now there was a part of me that kind of was dismissive about that and said well i don't really care or whatever but I realized that I was carrying a lot, a lot of that around, a lot of that, mm, uh, a lot of loss, a lot of grief there uh, for about two years. And it creeped up in me and it sent me down into the kind of spiral of depression. And um, I decided that I was going to tackle that. I was going to tackle it by doing something that equally helped other people who could not say things. And so writing things down, of course, is a very important part of of uh, um, unburdening ourselves or at least putting seeing you know tangibly on paper what it is that's that's going on your head it stops on this bouncing around and stuff you're nearly putting on a whiteboard and going ah look and you have those light bulb moments it is because you know our thoughts in a sense they're for a better want of a better word are not real in the very real in a very tangible sense yeah you can't believe them and it's only when you see them as words it's only when you see them as art when you only see them as music that then they have a form a form that, that you can investigate and also a form that can bounce back at you as well so you get the self-referencing thing going on so I decided that I wanted to create a bank a bank of secrets a place where people can go for one day and write down anything that was on their mind a grudge a worry and put this down on paper I would take that you know this deposit that they were putting in the bank uh, wouldn't read any of them they all went into sealed envelopes burnt them all in the end and made a bonfire of them burnt them all and made it into uh, ash a bundle of ash which I then ground down mixed with paint and paint on that wall so the idea for this piece was that it was a water-based paint and it was a water-based paint but funny enough that the project art center which i painted onto is a little bit protected from the rain so it did degrade a little bit but maybe not as fast as i expected so it was up there for about six months the idea of words uh that um troubles fade out in the open is that the sort of physical fading out in the open that i wanted the degrading to have the degradation to have but also troubles fade out in the open in the sense that when we start to say things when we start to talk about things they they lessen the impact um the anxiety that we have around them uh tends to dissipate brilliant yeah. I, I, I ring so many bells for me it just mm. where did you come up with that masterpiece it, did it just evolve did you just add to it or just yeah it kind of came from the idea of like a, a um, something that my friend and i did um about two weeks ago it was called an honesty fire an honesty fire we built like you know we were i was down in west cork and we were like out taking long walks and and picking wild herbs he's a herbalist and and uh, picking herbs and whatever and looking at different things that are in nature that have um medicinal qualities or or nutritional you know um 
properties in them that are good for your health but also i need the science part of it as well i need to know that they actually have basis in science and not one of these people that thinks that everything that's green has something good in it so you don't believe in unicorns no oh i believe in unicorns yeah (laughs) just to piss off jimmy doherty they're real Gemma. yeah yeah um they're real and they're building conspiracy <laughs> so um them the flat earthers oh my god the flat earthers but um so the <laughs> the idea is then to to if you have something that's on your mind if you have something for, to 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 gather things that are holding you back it could be uh, to gather things and create a fire out of it there's something very um there's something very purifying about the fire and i think it's because it's linked as well to our very primitive past where the fire was uh, not just heat and not just its ability to cook but also protecting us against wild animals and stuff like that so there's a spiritual side to the fire now i'm not a huge spiritualist and that's very sense i mean i i've been through a lot of that sort of spiritual uh, journey uh, but i'm very more pragmatic very more scientific led and skeptical these days but i still am a dreamer in the sense and i still hold the power of imagination that i can believe that a fire has a power in a spiritual way whatever that means um so once i came up that once i came up that sort of idea i thought well then i wanted to 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 put into very practical city terms and the city terms of it is that we all use services every day and one of those things is a bank the idea of a bank is that is that it, it stores things that are valuable to us but what if those valuable things that we, you know, we put, you put them there, there's a lot of trust you put into a bank. Mm-hmm. And banks have let us down in the past. And this is where that came from as well. Wow. So it came from the crash as well. There's the a lot banks, going on in this, quite yeah, complex. The banks had let us down at the time. And so by using, using the, because it could have been a post office. It could have been, I don't know, anything else. Yeah. But I wanted to be a bank because I quite wanted, apt. I wanted it could be almost like a, a, a truth bank. Uh, or it could have been, um, but the idea that it was safe and the idea that you could trust trust institutions again or at least trust something again because we, we lost trust. And so, yeah, I never read any of the secrets that are in there and sealed them all up, burned them and, and created paint out of them to make this thing. Something I wanted to replicate a lot around the country and something I still might do down the line. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Has has anyone talked to you about it like that has that has put secrets into it? Have people come back to you and said, you know, it was really helpful or did you get feedback yeah, about I it? Did. Even people sure. who are actually really good friends of mine today who I didn't know then. Like there's a there's a couple of people who I'd forgotten that were were part of this sort of a seventy odd people who were in it that are really good friends with me today. But they I they were talking about the pro- I was talking about the project there. They were talking about it and they were saying, Oh, I was one of those people who put the now they still I said I don't want to know what you mm, yeah I know but and they said that's why I'm not going to tell you did they get great peace from it yeah they said that yeah they said that and and for me that was a very private moment with them but it was a, it was really a way of them literally letting something go to have writing it down and you know I saw a lot of people in pain when they were writing stuff down I saw a lot of people a lot of tears um, and that's poignant it really is for them but I felt by handing it over to me and trusting me to, to, to do something that cathartic with it, to do something transformative with it, didn't mean that they were handing it over literally to somebody else to take care of. And that was um, huge for me. And, and from that time onwards, I mean, literally from the, from the time I put down a brush, the, um, 
the unburdening of the the depression and the feelings I had towards my father uh, changed dramatically. And I used to have bad dreams about us, our relationship, all the time. I mean, at least once a month I would have a bad nightmare or a bad dream about it. And I haven't had one since... Um, this is like from the day that this happened but I've had two good dreams since that my mind completely made up I mean which is bizarre because you know you don't expect your mind to kind of mix up up about something that never happened but you know what is one of these dreams that's surreal Mm. it's just one of these natural dreams but it was complete it was all a piece it was all good you got great great closure (laughs) from it yourself so yeah brilliant and it's amazing the, the power of art isn't it mm, it's incredible I mean the, it's amazing the power of the mind as well that's what yeah. it is you know so we I guess there is a there's a lot there's a lot to be explored there um, in terms of how art can help societies to at least face things I'm not saying that art is necessarily is going to be things that solve things but at least what it does it flags it points out um Maybe the, the, the whole reason for art and for the reason for being an artist is to be a conduit of truth in a sense. I know it's 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 there's a little bit of a it's my truth in a sense, but hmm. but I try to read society. I try to read the te- temperature of cities and and the, engage this, this current zeitgeist of way people feel about the moment because I feel that sometimes too. And trying to be open as well, and that's really important to be open to new ideas and to be able to change your mind about something. That's very important, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, at l- especially when when you're presented with a new way of thinking, people find resistance to, to new ways of thinking. And you know, when it comes to things like um, people's genders, expressions, and stuff like that, we have this binary idea. Or we have. I had binary ideas of, of what gender was when I was younger because I didn't know anything else mm. other than that. But more and more, I, I'm finding people's gender expression that is not binary. And so accommodating their gender expression is important to them. But it's also important to me and well in seeing that w- the world isn't a black and white place, you know. 100%. Mm-hmm. Wow, wow. You've done a piece called Landmines, was reading up and it looks like a fantastic piece. Give us a little insight to that. Yeah, that was um, that was that was the first of April two thousand seven. That I put um a hundred, about a hundred um landmines. So I say landmines. They were enamel plates that were turned upside down, painted green with the skull and crossbones and the words Brilliant. landmine on it. Put them around in parks uh, and um, some playgrounds around Dublin. And the reason for that was that the fourth of April was the International Landmine Awareness Day. And I wanted to highlight the um, the use of landmines, particularly anti-personnel landmines around the world. Every 20 minutes, there is somebody who's maimed or killed by a landmine in the world. In about, you know, landmines are, you know, we, we classically think about places like Cambodia and Vietnam and stuff like that. Mm. But they're everywhere, about 70 countries around the world. And um, for different uses, some of them are historically left over from, from different conflicts. Some of them are still being indiscriminately used in uh, in in other countries um, in the Middle East but then you get places like Bolivia and Colombia where they're being used by uh, drug cartels to protect their um, cocoa plants from people coming into the area as well so there's lots of different uses for landmines Um, but landmines do not discriminate they have no ability to tell 
you know, so it doesn't matter whether it's a child or a woman or a soldier, mm. um, uh, they're 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 just one of the nastiest pieces of of um, our ornaments or or nasty piece of weapons that you find out there. So the idea with it was to put the landmines in the in the ground around Dublin in order for again for people to come across them in order for them to truly understand in a sense just for a moment what it would be like to be in a situation where there was a landmine because I could stand there in a corner and I could give you a leaflet about landmines issue around the world mm. and it doesn't really mean anything to you I might educate you it's all intellectual knowledge but right. it's not uh, emerging awareness you know no. it does not tangible feel like it's fuck. yeah that's right and that's the thing for me I think that feeling something and knowing something is quite different so I'm there not necessarily to educate people but to motivate people so if your motivation is to to say I'm not going to go anywhere near that or oh my god what is that um, that I think uh, goes beyond the sort of um, educational into the motivational and then it gets you thinking about the the sort of um, the very practical the very real sense it makes it real that's of course. what it is and you, once you have emotion you get the hook you get boy in you do you do and then anybody who picked them up which lots of people did pick them up as well um was rewarded with that with a, um, a signed piece of work so each one was signed and there was a label on the back telling you about the issue and and what the project was Savage. and they were all no, numbered one of a hundred so yeah class yeah yeah so if you are brave enough to pick them up then you get one Deadly. Yeah, I saw somebody pick one up actually as I was walking away and picked it up and looked behind it and I thought, oh, that's really cool. Somebody picked it up, Class. and then they then they threw it to the dog like a frisbee, which I thought was brilliant. <laughs> I actually thought it was even funnier because then I thought about making a stencil of somebody throwing a landmine and this dog jumping up to get it. Fucking <laughs> brave dog, eh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I seen another lovely piece you doing. Uh, These colors don't run. And mm. uh, altogether humans. I was mm. looking at some of your work. I was mm. blown away. I follow you on Twitter, mm. but I didn't look into your work as much as I did over the last couple of weeks, and I've been really blown away by yeah some really great pieces. Yeah, I mean, a lot of those come from words. I'm mean, I'm very interested in words because words for me, one of the main things I always say is that words have inference, not necessarily meaning. Um, that when you say a word, you infer something. But the meaning is all relative to the person who's listening to them. Like perception is reality. Yeah, for sure. So, so when we say words, and, and uh, we have sometimes to clarify what those things are. You know, when I have discussions with people and we talk about, say, the words like God, I was like, before we start into a conversation about God, what does God mean to you? Because we need to have a sort of a basis of where we of understanding about what it is. You know that it's um, that we're communicating on the same thing. Yeah, that yeah, we're talking yeah. about the same thing. Yeah, exactly. So that's why for me, um, words have power. And so what I do like doing is taking things that have an established meaning or an established inference, and changing the way that they're structured, so that they have a different meaning, or at least they have two meanings depending on where you go. So altogether, human is um, is a kind of an expression that we use, but in the context of the of the show that it was for was a, a fundraiser for ACT UP and also to highlight um, Irish AIDS Day. Altogether, human came down to looking at the words HIV, human immunodeficiency, um, sorry, I'm getting mixed up, um, human immuno, immunovirus, <clears throat> was looking at the first 
word of HIV is human. And I thought it was how ironic that we focus so much on the word virus and very little on the first word of HIV, which is human. So we almost like take the human away from the words HIV in order to sort of, because the inference there is that the, the, the scare or the, the fear is around the virus, but we've turned that into the fear of the human and we dehumanize people who have HIV and mm. that's what leads then to stigma and to discrimination against people. Wow. Mm. That leads me nicely on to uh, your work as an activist mm. with ACT UP, which I'm really interested in. Mm. Give us a little insight to that. Uh, wow. So, ACT UP, I'll say that a short, a short history of ACT UP is that ACT UP, AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, started in 1987 in New York in response to uh, the, the negligence the political um, negligence and inaction by the Reagan government to respond to the AIDS, HIV and AIDS crisis in America. Remember, by the time ACT UP came about in 1987, there had already been five years of a crisis there where more and more people were uh, getting HIV and more and more people were dying in, of AIDS in their thousands, in their, in their tens of thousands. So... The, the response, grassroots response to it was to create a direct action group that would actually put their bodies on the line, activists who put their bodies on the line to force the government to spend money in research, to look after people who um, were dying or living with HIV, AIDS, and also to um, put pressure on the research companies, on, on the FDA in particular, to release the sort of some of the drugs that were being looked at at the time and speed up the process by it, where a drug goes into, into from trials to <coughs> the people who needed it. So it's a direct action group, really. And um, ACT UP, at its height in the 90s, had about 140 chapters around the world. So each, they're an autonomous group, so anyone can start an ACT UP around mm. the world. I guess that you just stick to its main uh, mission, and that is, you know, um, ACT UP is a diverse, nonpartisan group of individuals united in anger and committed to direct, direct action to end the HIV and AIDS crisis. Wow. And so we in, uh, in here in, in Dublin or in Ireland recognized from about 2015 onwards that we were seeing an upward trend of newly reported HIV diagnoses. And it progressively got worse. And there were lots of people out there saying we need to do something about it. And it was um, a guy called Robbie Lawler and then a couple of other people who got together. And I think I went along to the second meeting and I just threw my uh, all my weight into it and all my energy and time into it. Because I too had recognized back in about 2015 that there was a crisis on its way and I wanted to do something about it. And so we immediately rallied people together. We put pressure on government, on um NGOs on um, state agencies um, and put pressure on um, either through direct actions or through um, you know uh, protests and and one of the things main things we did is went out there and gave people information about um, prevention strategies um, and uh, we did a lot of work and we're still doing a lot of work on trying to get prep which is um, 
a anti HIV drug mm. to, to to be given to people for free in this country as well. Just when we talk about like we talk about crisis and epidemic, to me it's an epidemic. My figures mm. were wrote down here mm. was. In 2018 was the record number. Yes. Uh, I think 531 people That's were right. diagnosed mm-hmm. uh, in relation to road people dying by road traffic accident, mm-hmm. accidents, mm-hmm. 148 people. Mm-hmm. But yet you see things on the news all the time, mm-hmm. you know, campaign and wear your seatbelt, all this kind of shit. Mm-hmm. Why is it not? Why is it not? That's a good question, actually. And something that um, Una Mullally pointed out in a piece that she did recently for The Times, where she's saying, we, we, you see um, national campaigns for putting gum in the bin, but not a single national campaign for, you know, for protecting yourself from, 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 uh, from HIV. Now, I need, to, I need to kind of like parse this by, by saying, if somebody is living with HIV they can, and, and on treatment, they can live a, a, as good a life and longer <coughs> life as anybody else. And these days, because the treatment is so good that anybody living with HIV on effective treatment cannot pass on HIV to another person sexually. It's, there's a number of studies, I mean, huge studies have done it. Uh, four studies, um, you know, thousands and thousands of participants and categorically 58,500 times people had sex I think there was 888 couples it was was studied that's right and not one single not one one 58,500 times they had sex that's a lot of that's a lot of fun that's a lot of (laughs) hanky panky and there was there was no uh, there was no uh, and no transmission not a single one that's only one of the studies yeah that's only there was three studies and then that was a partner one study the partner two study was that sponsored by Mattress Mick I wonder I don't know but you know what he he, he should make a few quid out of that should have got his name in there somewhere (laughs) Uh, you know, the, maybe the next study. Yeah, yeah. Get yeah. mixed. You know, it's a lot of mattresses. A lot it? of fucking mattresses. A lot of mattresses. Um, so the next study was um, the Partner Two study, which focused because that 888 couples was a mixture of heterosexual and gay uh, couples. This next study, the Partner Two study, which the results of that came out last year, was uh, was of only of gay men and it produced the same result. Not one single transmission of HIV from HIV positive partner on effective treatment and undetectable to HIV negative uh, partner not one single one so the science is clear if a person is living with HIV and they are on effective treatment which means that the their medicine is working properly and they are undetectable that is in you cannot detect the um, HIV virus in the blood it doesn't mean they're cured it just means that they have an undetectable viral load it is so small cannot be passed on to another person sexually now that piece of information is the most important information you're going to find uh, here in the podcast today because that limits the amount of fear and stigma that a person has about getting tested in the first place so we you know i had it when i was younger that's this idea in my head that if you get hiv you're going to get aids you're going to die i mean there was a time when that was true for for you know 100 yeah. yeah but you know, a medication that the medication started to come through, combined with medication started to come through in about ninety seven. So that hasn't been the case for anybody who can get access to medication. Mm. And getting access is important because there are lots of people around the world who still don't have access. Of course, if you get access to that medication, there is no reason that you can't live a long and healthy life and also have have children. 
No problem. Because you're undetectable. You mm. can't transmit the virus. So I've known loads of people who started families. So that's the, the U equals U movement. That's U equals U. Undetectable equals untransmittable. Mm. So yeah, I know loads of people. Even in the last few years, you've started families, which is fantastic for them. Brilliant. There's no holding back. I mean, to say that that um, HIV or being living with HIV is not a death sentence anymore is a disservice to the medication and all the science behind it because mm. it's more than just about not being a death sentence it's actually the star of life life for that person in terms of they can plan for the future and do all the things they want to do and in life in terms of they can have children and so that's that's why we've got to we've really got to rethink the way we think about hiv and 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 um and also we've got to educate ourselves and rethink it a lot a lot better now i had to go through a lot of education too because there was a lot of stuff that i've that I just didn't know, or else I had really faulty ideas about. So when I joined ACT UP, um, one of the things I was doing was to educate myself <coughs> about the prevention strategies, about the treatments, um, but also about stigma as well. And I did, I did know people who were living with HIV before I joined ACT UP, and that's one of the reasons that led me to it, because I had three friends in the space of 18 months who became HIV positive. And that was a bit of a shocker for me because, for one, I hadn't heard about it for a long time, you know. And the problem is that we, we don't, when people don't talk about something, it just gets shuffled away into the background. And we don't think it's a problem anymore. So yeah. then our, we let our guards down. We let our guards down, you know, um, mistakes can happen. And people, and that's, and, and, and that's how many pe- how people get HIV. Most people get HIV from unprotected um, sex and um, if we were to be honest with each other there's been plenty of times when that's happened but for some of us with with um, who know our status that we were just lucky that that didn't happen I was the same as well I was in London for 10 years from 94 until 2004 and all that time I had been in a couple of relationships a few relationships in that time but I didn't get tested once for HIV which is insane why I didn't but what was the reason I didn't? So the reason I didn't is because, one, I didn't really know an awful lot about the... I, I come from a country where being gay was illegal up to the point of where I left. Um, I didn't really have a lot of education about um, HIV or STIs at school. Um, practically none. So I didn't think I was I was at risk. I didn't see myself at risk. It was it's like, a oh, blind I'm, spot. Yeah, it is. I'm, sorry, I'm in a relationship, so I'm, therefore I'm safe. Relationships are, are great, but they... They're not a prevention strategy. I think it couldn't be. A, it couldn't be a, probably not a loyal relationship. You For know, sure. Yeah, I mean, like, trust is not. A, a, is, I mean, I don't. I won't. You know, want necessarily people to trust. Is not this. a contraception. Yeah, it's not, and I don't want necessarily people listening to the podcast thinking, well, you know, um, to immediately have suspicious or to be suspicious about each other, but at the same time, you can't be naive either. Uh, you know that that um, that if you are in a relationship and you are not. Uh, using any form of protection, whether it's PrEP or the ubicles U or the um, or using condoms, then you are in a sense open to um, to to any of those things happening. So I would say that the most important thing is dialogue is the most important thing with your partner or partners, and getting checked is vital. Um, I get checked four times a year. Every three months, I get an STI check and wow. an HIV test. That's because I'm on PrEP. And PrEP is that um, that drug I talked about earlier on. So um, it's a very simple thing that puts me, um, you know, every three months. 
takes about an hour, puts my mind, my mind at ease. So maybe I'll talk about prep as one of those uh, things that was going to really be the game changer yeah. in terms of reducing HIV numbers. <clears throat> prep is pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is a um, is a anti-HIV medication that's taken by people who are HIV negative. So it's only negative HIV negative people who can take it, and what it does is prevents HIV from taking hold. That's it. It protects you from HIV. It's almost complete protection against it were I mean, we talking 99 percent 99.9 percent yeah i mean we're talking about almost complete protection and the reason you i would say that is because you can never say anything's a hundred percent of course you know it's just that it, there's no so we we see about there roughly around the world now about there is about um a quarter of a million people taking it which is like again it's a fairly new drug um, it is available in ireland has been available in pharmacies since December 2017. But its cost, which started about 90 euros, has come down. The cheapest you get PrEP now for is 50 euro for a 30-day supply, so 30 pills. Okay. Now, um, you can buy cheaper online, but again, there's a problem of importing medications, into prescription medications into Ireland. It is prohibited. Yeah, so. you have to have so a You have to have a prescription. Or pay VAT and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so it is important, but it is important to get your checks beforehand. If you, if you think that you are vulnerable to HIV and you fit into a category that is vulnerable to HIV, um, if you're a sex worker, if you're, um, if you're a gay and bisexual man, um, a person who is not using or are heterosexual but somebody who is using uh, not using condoms consistently or correctly then you would be considered vulnerable to hiv it depends on of course your partners and, and their relationships as well of course and the sex you're having so it would be um, beneficial for you to go and talk to if you thought you're at risk from hiv to go and talk to a um to a sexual health clinic or talk to a doctor if they were clued up on PrEP, which a lot of them aren't. I do not. A lot of the GPs, are they aware of it? Or they are. It? The, 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 level, the level base, the knowledge base is increasing because a lot more people are asking about it, but we don't see the level base, uh, the level uh, knowledge going up as, as fast as it should be in order to sort of like make an impact. But availability is the most important thing, making it available. So I, um, you know, buy PrEP online, costs about, I'd uh, say 70 euros for a three month supply. That's about wow. 90 pills, which is really, really good. So it works out about a euro a day, which is, you know, yeah. I mean, like I bought a coffee today. It was like 310. I was shocked. <laughs> I was like, that's three days worth of prep. Oh, Jesus Christ. But you know, that's, you know, in, ter in relative terms, mm. you know, it's, it's sometimes it's good to put that into relative terms. Uh, a euro a day for peace of mind. It's great. So, um, it's just important to get checked and to uh, every three months get your prescription and go back and get more prep again and so i will stay on prep as long as i need to because there's side effects to it um some people experience short-term side effects at the very start about five percent of people do usually it's it's kind of um uneasiness uh, sort of stomach uneasiness okay, okay. um some people experience um some nausea but it usually okay. passes about okay. for about a week but other than that it's very well tolerated yeah. and um it's safe and it's effective it's extreme it's really effective so um what we've been calling on act up has been calling on and uh is that the government um provide prep 
through the uh, drug payment scheme or through um, the HSC uh, prep to anybody who needs it with no financial barrier. Now, not everybody is right for prep because you know it's not for everybody. Some people are going to use uh, condoms. They may not be part of a vulnerable group who need to to use mm. prep. They don't need it. But some people who are using condoms inconsistently, uh, incorrectly, or not at all, would be beneficial for using prep. So, you know, people might listen to this and say, "Well, why don't people just wear wear condoms? Why, you know, the, this sort of one size fits all." Uh, sort of response isn't actually the way that world works at all because everyone's relationships are different and there's lots of reasons why people um, use condoms inconsistently of course some of them some of them is just a practical sort of like um, where people get away carried away and they don't use condoms or they don't they, they carry them and intend to use them but they don't or they rip or they rip I mean that accidental you know Kind of usage or, or, or breakage is is not as common as the sort of not wearing one in the first place. But we all know, and we've all been in those situations. And you know, if you haven't, well, you know, congrats for you for 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 consistently using them all the time. But the the actual real world experience is that there have been plenty of times where we've just let a slide. And even in the government reports, when they're looking at sex and and attitudes, um, they 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 were asking people you know when the last time they had condomous sex with a person who was a new or casual partner and they're saying what was your reason for not using condoms and the answer was i trusted the person not to have an sti again it comes back to the idea trust is not a um a prevention tool it's not a contraception yeah it's not a contraception and it's also won't protect you against uh, hiv or uh, other stis and from my chats with microbiologists from my college and that uh viruses can pass through condoms as well you know not all of them are, are virus proof yeah i think that to be honest with you i i i have, don't know any of the sort of science behind the sort of virus passing through but like condoms are very very good at protecting against stis including hiv however they have to be used in the first place of course, yeah, do yeah, that. True. and then there are some people who will be in different types of relationship we all have this again this binary idea of relationships you're either with somebody or you're single. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And there are lots of different people. There are people in open relationships, people who have committed uh, partners and then are open uh, with other partners as well. We can't use a sort of a binary idea to relationships. We've got to start seeing, start seeing the world as it is. The other thing as well, we have to ask ourselves as well, people coming in, you know, through the education system, what are we actually teaching younger people about sex and, and healthy attitudes towards sex so a lot of the um the attitudes and, and the feelings we have about sex is also stem from sort of the shame of 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 um of, of sex and stis matter we don't want to talk about it of course and we um, just had that conversation earlier yeah. you know about the shame in order and so that brings me back to my question mm-hmm. when i asked you about the the road safety and i'm not talking about is that this innate shame fear you know of HIV is that way it's not talked about is it not way it's campaigned is drink driving and wearing your seatbelt more important than something that was caught through sex mm. yeah it is it, I, it it actually does a lot of it comes back to one of it some of it stems back from a historical idea that HIV equals you know that you're going to die and and for the for for the some of the people who get those diagnoses every year some of those people would probably 
would be met with that news that automatically they think that they're going to mm-hmm. develop AIDS and die. That's that's what it means to them. That's because the way that we talk about HIV and the science of it has changed so much that it hasn't caught up with the sort of day-to-day reality of it. So you mentioned HIV uh, and the word AIDS and HIV together in a sentence and people automatically have this idea about these of these you know people with um you know with with weight loss and you know and uh, skin lesions and all that kind of stuff that doesn't happen to people who are getting medication mm. hiv tra- treatment is very good in this country and it's free in this country to anybody regardless of your regardless of where you're from um or your or your sexual preference or your gender or whatever it doesn't matter and keeping people healthy is the best thing you can do for public health. That's what public health is about. But the benefit of the medication that is not only just help that person to have a normal life, but it also makes that person confident about the fact that they cannot pass it on. So it has that multiplier effect. So really it's up to every single one of us to know our HIV status. That is the most important thing you can know. And you know, if people inquire about my HIV status and ask me, I say the answer I gave give to them is that my last test was negative. And I think that's a very important way of saying it. So I don't say I'm negative. I mean, that's a that's one way of saying it. But I always say my last test was negative. The last <coughs> test is negative shows that your status is not a permanent uh, thing. You know, somebody can say, oh, I'm, I'm HIV negative. Well, when was your last test? Like two years ago. Well, that status could change. Wow. Now, the, 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 it, it all depends on, on what type of sex you've had or the, your vulnerability or, or risks in between. But don't just assume that because you feel fine that everything's fine. I mean, you know, I do think that people need to know their status. And I'm not just talking about HIV. I'm talking about other STIs in general because, you know, there are lots of STIs that don't show noticeable symptoms. Um, you know, uh, it would be like, um, uh, you know, half of men who have chlamydia or gonorrhea will have symptoms. Half won't. Um, I mean, in women, it's higher. It's like uh, um, it's only like, um, you know, three out of 10 women will have uh, symptoms of chlamydia or, or gonorrhea, particularly with cl- chlamydia. So, again, there are these STIs that are dormant mm. and, you know, they're bacteria and they can be easily treated. But they can only be treated if you know that they're that they're there. So test regularly. Uh, go to your local GP um, and think about your sexual health in the same way as you do about your eyes or your ears or anything like that or your teeth. You know, we do all of these things. We go to the gym and we spend hundreds and thousands and thousands yep. on ourselves and how we look and whatever like Our that. Physical appearance. Physical yeah. appearance because of the gym and we get our teeth whitened and, um, you know, we, we do all these cosmetic things, whatever like that. And, you know, and the one piece of joy you get, you know, is having sex is like, have a look after that as well. You know, yeah. you, your bits are not invisible. <laughs> I fucking hope they're not. <laughs> exactly. So treat them like any other part of your body. Wow. Something that needs to be looked after. Something that needs to, that needs protecting, but also needs um, some respect as well. So mm. I think we've got to change our attitudes towards it. How do we change the attitudes though to bring, because I think everything should be down to education mm-hmm. you know we educate kids like i was educated when i was in school how do we change that piece well it actually is a 
it's an holistic approach to it because it isn't just about education and school. Saying it's just about education and school is is a way is 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 then, I guess, passing it off then because those conversations need to be uh, extended into mm. the family home. They need to be extended into peer to peer, peer to peer education amongst young people talking to each other about sexual health and healthy attitudes towards sex and consent and all those other things so it is a holistic approach in the same way that when you go to a you know you know that the ideal thing is that the conversations that your parents are having with you at home even though they're probably embarrassing for a teen that you know parents need to modulate the way that they talk about sex and and healthy sex relationships with their with young people but that should be passed with you know when you're waiting for the bus to go to school that there is a, a mm. bus shelter that has a, a again a sex positive attitude towards sexual health and that mixed with debates on the way uh, talks on the radio mixed with you know advertising um online messaging that all that all comes back and all um clarifies and compounds that same idea that being sexual health and sexual health is an important part of your being and of your well-being and it's something that should be looked after and if there's something that you don't feel is right then you should feel free to talk to somebody about it whether it is parents or whether it's a friend or whatever so it's only when we 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 start that holistic idea about attitudes towards it because you know when we talk about the things like road safety i mean if you sat into a car and you saw somebody and they didn't belt up, you just say to them, throw the belt on there now. If you'd notice it, right? Mm. But in years past, I mean, I remember going back to like the 70s and stuff like that, where all these things were sort of like, you wouldn't say anything to anybody. I get into a car, I get into a taxi with friends, whatever, and there's like three of us in the back row and the person in the middle hasn't belted up. I'm like, throw that on there now. I recently just had that with somebody. Did you? Yeah, we were just talking about it. They don't normally wear a nice seatbelt. Of course, I was worried about my me getting injured. Mm-hmm. Now, because I, I really care about it, now I'm worried about them. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, people just do it, don't you? Jump so the that's a peer to peer. That's an, a good, good example of like you talking about something. So you didn't let it go. You noticed it and say, yeah, you can look after yourself there, whatever. But then that's that's reinforced then by the government adverts, mm. reinforced by bus bus shelters and by the adverts you see on TV, and it's only by political uh, investment and it's only by um, the NGOs invested in it as well, and also <coughs> people talking about it. I mean, we see those adverts. The ones that being the most powerful are the people who are actually talking about the real life experience mm. of it. And so that's the same with HIV as well, that we need to hear from people who are living with HIV, talking about stigma, talking about how um, they have been treated differently in the past, but telling you at the same time, the world has changed. Mm. The way we fight this uh, virus has changed. I am now on, you know, they say, uh, a person with HIV saying, now I'm living with an effective treatment, which means that I'm going to live as long as anybody else and have a healthy life. Mm. But, and I'm being treated and undetectable but how are you how is society treating me still treating me as a vector you know still treating me as like a vessel that's just like you know the 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 really negative words that we use in the past like an aids carrier those words are destructive to people and all they just do is send people into the darkness with with that shame and that stigma and it doesn't if you don't allow people to talk about it then none of society's having a conversation about it 
Mm. I went to see a play recently called The Morning After the Life Before. Mm-hmm. I think it was called Anne Bake. It was on in uh, the Bewley's Cafe and it's mm-hmm. around the whole uh, the marriage equality, the referendum stuff. And there was one piece in it when she was talking about her youth and about growing up and being gay. The stigma attached oh, if you're gay, mm-hmm. that's related to AIDS, mm-hmm. HIV. Mm-hmm. Have we moved away from that, do you think? I think we've moved away from that, but I think that they, 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 in some ways, it's hard to it's hard to kind of like measure it because I've different experience of it myself. But like one of the things that when I was younger, like looking at the, you know, the Sunday World, with lots of AIDS stories on it, you know, everyone from like you know, Rock Hudson to um, say freddie mercury in the 1991 which I, by that stage of starting, co- starting college i knew i was gay but at the same time i would not tell anybody but those the, 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 there was um there was a correlation in sense of, of, of being gay and, and the and, and hiv but like for me i was never going to or didn't want to i was too afraid to have any contact with same-sex partners so for me, it wasn't uh, necessarily something I thought about, but it certainly, certainly kept me um, fearful. Um, I don't think I think that sort of it split off. And I think that after the combination retrovirals came in in 1997, and people didn't weren't people who had access to antiretrovirals didn't die in the in the same numbers that they do before. I mean, you know, uh, it has really changed the landscape of it. What happened was that, in a sense, that the medication then allowed people to get on with their lives, and then you didn't hear people f- fighting for their lives anymore, mm. and so um, it became a manageable condition, um, and so it se- it seemed to have stopped there. But the news never carried on that this remarkable medication was not only getting people to live with their lives, but also making them undetectable. So we never caught up. It seems that we're emotionally and historically stunted around 1997. Mm. And, um, and so when we see a rise in, in HIV numbers in Ireland, then in the last few years, people are really surprised. Well, I'm not surprised in a sense because the government never, unlike other European governments, never moved in quite mm, quickly and adopted the latest HIV prevention strategy, which is PrEP, yeah. whereas all the other countries uh, around Europe had immediately taken it into a system. And, and they saw um, immediate drops. I mean, HIV levels in their country were dropping slowly and maybe stagnating, but then they saw significant drops, especially the UK. Um, and the, uh, Scotland is seeing a huge drop in HIV numbers, particularly amongst, men, uh, amongst um, gay and bisexual men who are the, one of the most vulnerable groups. So it's it's a complacency. And still, to this day, we still don't have PrEP on the um, on the HSE. And we're promised it this year. But the glacial pace of change in this country is exasperating. But um, we are very determined. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of like one, one, one of these like, types of dogs when I got one jaw locked onto something i don't lock like jaw yeah and we have a, i mean act up is growing an awful lot as well so we've ch- we've chapters in cork and belfast now as well so it isn't just a dublin centric thing and that's very important as well because we tend to think about when we tend to think about uh issues like this we tend to think about like the populist areas but like 
there are, are people who are vulnerable to HIV everywhere in this country. Mm. And also, they're not necessarily as well people who are born in Ireland as well. You know, there are people in direct provision who uh, are vulnerable to HIV. There are people who, who come to this country to try and make a life better for themselves. And, um, and within their own communities as well, they become vulnerable to HIV. And there was a study done there back in 2017. It came out in 2017 showing that the majority of migrants who became HIV positive did in the country that they went to, not from where they came from. Oh. So this idea that somehow, somehow the foreigners are bringing HIV in, that is just not true. The evidence does not support it at all. So we have a, we have a responsibility for people who live in this country and as a responsibility for public health to look after everybody in the same way. And so we're trying to break down those barriers as well. Fantastic. I, I read a lot on ACT UP and I read uh, lots of the posts that you have up and a lot of words jump out at me like war, fight, mm. struggle, mm. battle. There was loads of these really strong words but what I get from them, from what I get from you and your work, there's a lot of still out of love, compassion, mm. empathy. You're not battle hardened. I read a piece where you said people come along and they fight the good fight, mm. they fall away. Mm. I don't get that from you and I still see that you're practicing it again through love, compassion mm. and empathy yeah. rather than bitterness and hardship. Would I be right saying yeah, that? Yeah, it is. And that's an important aspect of it as well. You know, I've said before that if somebody, if I'm with out with you know a group of friends and somebody says like a disparaging or or, or ill-informed thing about HIV or, or 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 something like that, or STIs or sex, whatever. I won't jump down their throats. I won't challenge them. But I, what I'm very very interested in is why what a person believes and why do they believe it? Because that way you can investigate and actually you could help them to to see something from a different point of view. If you jump at them straight away and say you know uh, and say something like that's. You know, if you jump at them straight away and be disparaging, you're not helping them at all. In the same way as that, you know, if, uh, if they're talking about HIV on the radio and somebody calls up and says, why doesn't just everyone wear condoms? Like, congratulations, you've actually provided no content or no solution at all to, that pro to, this, to, to this issue. Because what you're doing is you're just having this one-size-fits-all without seeing the nuance that's, it's, that's there. So, yes, compassion is very important. Perspective and patience is also very important when you're campaigning as well. And mm. I've learned that from my past with Greenpeace. There's a lot, it takes a long time for things to become mm. you know, better for some things. I mean, climate change is one of those things. I've been working on climate change. I was doing climate change uh, actions when I was 16. Wow. That's 1988. And wow. so, you know, you know, there like two weekends ago, there was a climate action protest with lots of young people involved and looking at them they're they're older than i was when i was first doing it and we're how close are we to solving the climate change issue we're still far away i mean i don't know if it's something that can be solved in the same way as the solutions they were putting forward in the 90s and the early 2000s however the 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 compassion side is definitely one if you don't have compassion if you don't have empathy if you can't speak to people and understand their vulnerability and their humanness, um, then you're not going to make an awful lot of strides to it. You, you try, try to appeal to people's human nature mm. and maybe try to get them to understand as well that people aren't black and white and things aren't as binary as they as they think they are. Yeah, I, I well, that's what I got from your post. There was a lot of compassion and it comes out in your work and there's mm. not a lot of hatred and court and anger. It's mm. done in a lovely 
humanic humanic way mm. and it's full of empathy mm. and i was doing more research and i watched an interview with your sister and you talked about a letter mm. that you wrote to your mom yeah. coming out and and again what jumped out at me you were worried about what she would think and she'd be worried about whether you're safe yeah. and in a letter you made it your business to tell her that you're safe yeah and i thought yeah. that was lovely i i was thinking from her perspective and i think that's one of the traits i try to do is that when you talk to somebody separate yourself out particularly in a situation where it's confrontational separate yourself out and sometimes i sometimes seem kind of see myself physically do it yeah put yourself as a third person the observer and whatever you say and whatever they see, try to see it from an, the, the other person's point of view. Yeah. So the third person is a great way of doing it. So when I'm constructing that letter, I'm trying to I'm trying to anticipate me telling my mom I'm gay. What's that going? What's the immediate reaction she's going to get? Well, immediate reaction back in the sort of nineties is that uh, gay people tend to get HIV more and die from AIDS. That's what well that's the reality back in the time it was in the nineties. Mm. So how do you allay those fears? Well, say that I'm looking after myself. And I was, I was, and, I'm, and you know, despite not getting tested all the way through the 90s, I was pretty fastidious about using protection mm. and using condoms. Well, there were plenty of times I didn't as well. Mm. You know, there was, not plenty of times, but there were the times I didn't. Oh, you fucker. <laughs> the the camera, yeah. Okay. We have the sound. Oh, Grant. <clears throat> so there was plenty of times that I didn't. So it was those times I didn't. I was just lucky. That's all. Not just, you know, completely protected or anything like that, but I was just lucky. That's all. Wow. It's, it's amazing, amazing. I love that you uh, you had that, that compassion, love and empathy in your heart. Mm. Look, we're, we're coming up to an hour. I've took up a lot of your time. No problem at all. What's the one thing you would like people to take away from this interview after listening to your story? The number one thing is that a person who is living with HIV on effective treatment cannot pass on HIV to another person sexually that is the most important thing you remember today if you hear about HIV if you hear about somebody living with HIV or somebody who's HIV positive whichever way it's phrased to you um, you have to know that they know their status um, they're living with a manageable condition um, that manageable condition uh, means that they're on treatment that treatment is free and to anybody in this country and when that treatment is effective and that person is undetectable they cannot pass on HIV to another person and they can just get on with their life and have children and do all the things that you and I do and should be treated as another human being and not as a vector for, for a virus Will St. Leisure Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to meet you. You're a lovely human being. You're in the same ilk as your good friend, Tony Walsh. Yeah. Another decent, incredible human being. I'm blown away by your empathy. Uh, it's it's not just a job for you, you know. It's innate in you that you care about human beings. And that comes through your work, sitting here talking to you. It's a pleasure, actually, to spend some time with you. Thanks, to you. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much.